0: Happy New Year's, folks. I hope everyone has had a lovely and peaceful holiday and the January blues aren't hitting too hard. A little update before the episode today. You'll have noticed that the feed continues to be sporadic. Basically, I am still firmly on the struggle bus when it comes to organisation and focus, and the show was the worst affected by this, as I'm sure you can imagine. I'm also still in the process of house buying ash at attempt and house number three at this stage, Hopefully that'll all go smoothly and be behind us in a couple of months, but it is a distraction. In terms of the show, the plan is to get some additional help in to try and get things back on track without running the risk of burnout and so on. And once I am back on track, I hope you'll be glad to hear that there are plans afoot for new and exciting mens rea content. It's all a bit hush hush at the moment, but as soon as I can give more details, I will. You're about to hear a bonus episode that aired over on Patreon in December of 2019, and it is one of the most prominent historical cases in Ireland, the disappearance of six-year-old Mary Boyle. You'll have some brand new content in about two weeks' time, fingers crossed. Again, Happy New Year's to you all, and a big thank you for sticking with me and continuing to listen to the show, especially since things have gotten a little less structured. Knowing that you all are out there and patiently waiting for new stories is a huge motivation and I appreciate every single one of you. I can't emphasise that enough. So thank you, really. And now, on to the episode. You're listening to the Mensaree Podcast. And this is the story of Mary Boyle. Longest missing person and child. She disappeared from her grandparents' cottage in remote Donegal in 1977, never to be seen again. Some have referred to the case as Ireland's Madeleine McCann, and the case, along with its 40 year long investigation and the press coverage, does begin to approach the levels of controversy stirred by its British counterpart. With only one arrest in four decades, allegations of political interference and police misconduct, and the involvement of divisive figures in the media, the disappearance of Mary Boyle has continued to baffle the Irish public. Anne Gallagher met Charlie Boyle when they were both living and working in Birmingham in the UK, though they were both originally from County Donegal. Anne was from Ballyshannon in the southern part of the county, and Charlie had come from Owie Island just off the northwest coast. They married in 1967. Their eldest child, a son called Patrick, was born two years later, and twin girls, Mary and Anne, arrived the following year on the 14th of June, 1970. Though their lives together and their family had been established and developed in Birmingham, Charlie and Anne decided to move back home. Charlie had missed it and, though Anne had wanted to make a move to America, they ended up back in their home place of County Donegal. First, they headed back to the island where Charlie worked as a fisherman, among a tiny community of no more than 20 people. Then they moved to the mainland and began building a home for themselves in Burtonport. According to Barry Cummins' book Missing, Mary was a bubbly child and a bit of a chatterbox. In the spring of 1977, she and Anne were three months from their seventh birthdays and were looking forward to making their first Holy Communion together in the intervening months. Their brother Patrick was eight at that time. On the morning of St. Patrick's Day, the family piled into their car and drove along the coast south to their grandparents' home, outside of Cashelard the Gallagher house was isolated. There was access by a small paved lane to the cottage. The neighbour's home, the Macaulay's, was only a few minutes' walk away, but from the position of the Gallagher's house on the hillside, nestled in between some tall trees, the other house wasn't visible, nor was the nearby road that led directly out to the border with Northern Ireland. There was a path between the two houses, a little laneway not suitable for cars to drive down. Staying at the house during the holiday were Anne's parents, along with her brother Jerry and his wife Eva, and their two sons. The family had come together to attend a memorial mass for one of the Gallagher boys, who had died in a farming accident a few years before. The day after, on the 18th of March, the family continued to spend time together in the small cottage. The children played together and the adults chatted, and Anne Senior helped her mother around the house. Little Mary divided her time between outside and inside. She was a thoughtful kid and liked to spend time with her mum, doing chores like washing the dishes. That day Mary was dressed in a light purple knitted cardigan and black trousers, and because the ground outside was damp, she was wearing wellies. Her blonde hair was tied back in matching ribbons. Near to four o'clock, just after the family had sat down for dinner, Mary's uncle, Jerry, decided to return a ladder to the neighbours, the Macaulays. He'd been working on the roof of his parents' house and had borrowed it. There were a number of chores that needed doing at his parents' cottage that he was turning his hand to. And so Jerry decided to drop the ladder back and set off across the boggy field to make the 400-yard walk to the neighbours. As he went, he passed the children who were playing outside. Mary was there with her twin sister Anne and her brother Paddy and their two cousins. As Jerry began the walk, Mary shadowed him. Jerry noticed the girl following him and let her, until they came to a damp, puddle-filled section of the walk. There was about six inches of mud to wade through. At that point, Jerry ordered Mary home, and so she turned, munching on a packet of Tato crisps, to make the five-minute walk back to her grandparents' house on her own. That was the last time Mary was ever seen. Meanwhile, Jerry continued on to the Macaulay's. He chatted with the neighbours and arrived home himself at about half-past four. Back at the house, and Senior looked out the front door to watch all the children playing. It was a shock to realise that Mary wasn't with them. She called out to Jerry, who was by then fixing a stone wall in front of the house, and asked if he'd seen Mary, but he didn't answer. He hadn't heard her. She asked again a few minutes later and this time Jerry reacted quickly. He jumped in his car and sped down the road to look for her. Anne swung into a panic. She began shaking and asked her mother to light a candle and started sprinkling holy water around in the hopes that Mary would appear. When Jerry returned, he said there'd been no sign of the six-year-old, and explained that Mary had followed him out onto the bog earlier in the day. Anne jumped into her own car then and began driving the tiny roads around her parents' house, looking for any sign of Mary, but there was nothing. Jerry retraced his steps once more and Anne ran down to the pond behind the house Lock Column Kill. She spoke to some fishermen there. Three men were on the small pond that afternoon, poachers, who were fishing illegally on the lake with an otter board, trawling nets. But they said they saw nothing. As was quite common at the time, there was no phone in the Gallagher's house, so the men agreed to set off in search of one to notify Gardie at Ballyshannon. An extensive search began. The entire lake behind the grandparents' house in Upper Cachelard was drained in an attempt to locate Mary. The bog was painstakingly searched. Mary's body was not found. The search continued into the night under the light of flares. A helicopter was brought in by the army and questionnaires were issued by the Gardaí. Hundreds of volunteers helped to search the surrounding fields and Bogland. Every guard available, as well as the defence forces, were called in. In just over a day, the search numbers had gone up to 500, searching an area 25 square miles. The Sabaqua team was called in and searched the local waterways with the help of a local canoeing club. The local drama festival was interrupted so that people could lend a hand looking for the little girl. Gardie thought that perhaps, if Mary hadn't made it home, that she might have turned around once more after leaving her uncle. Maybe she'd walked on past the neighbor's house and ended up on a local road along that roadway beyond the Macaulays. A wrapper from a packet of sweets was found, and Mary had been given half of a roll of sweets by her aunt earlier that day, but the wrapper was not preserved. Others had seen small footprints in mud near the Macaulay's house, but they were walked over in the course of the search. Anne, Mary's twin sister, was later told that these footprints were beyond the point that Jerry had walked with Mary, and this meant that perhaps the theory that Mary had turned around again and continued on might be true. According to Barry Cummins, Gardy were so desperate to figure out what had happened to Mary that they had little Anne walk the route that her sister had taken under the pretense of running an errand. The idea was that, perhaps because the little girls were twins, Anne might do the same as Mary and point the officers in a new direction. Gardee stood by watching as the six-year-old followed Garda Martin Collins across the bog and was asked to run back to her nana's to get something. She paused at one point, unable to see her grandmother's house, but she righted herself, and continued on. The novel idea had come to nothing. Any visitors to the Cachelard area were tracked down, but none of them had been near the Gallagher home when Mary disappeared that day. Six local men known to the Gardie were investigated. The men had all been accused or convicted of sexually motivated attacks, but all were ruled out. During the third day of the search for Mary, something was found, but it had nothing at all to do with the missing girl. An arms dump was uncovered as mine shafts and bog holes were examined. It was, after all, the 1970s near to the border with Northern Ireland. The search was called off after four days of fruitlessly scouring the mountainside and forest near to Mary's grandparents' home. In 1978, the Irish Times reported that a girl in England was sighted and described as matching Mary's appearance. This report also mentioned the similarities between Mary's case and that of Jeanette Tate, which had occurred only two weeks before the possible sighting. Of course, this girl was not in fact Mary. It seemed from that point that the disappearance of Mary Boyle went forgotten. Her name might be mentioned when other children went missing, but invariably she was referred to as an unsolved mystery. Although Gardee considered the case still open, as time passed there was little hope that Mary Boyle would be found. Her family, however, never stopped hoping that Mary would be located, and much of the continued investigation throughout the 90s was down to their insistence that searches take place. Charlie and Anne Sr., just wanted to know what had happened to their little girl and give her remains a proper Christian burial. In November of 1994, Gardy, with the assistance of the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children in the US, released a computerised age progression of Mary, showing what she might look like 17 years after her disappearance. In October of 1995, the Garda Sub-Aqua team revisited the site at the Gallagher's cottage and searched the lake at Carrick Nahorna. This lake had not been searched in the initial investigation. Around the same time, Gardi got two anonymous calls from people purporting to know where Mary was buried, but nothing came of these investigations. In September of 1996, a large scale search of a boggy area half a mile from the Gallagher home was also conducted. Heavy machinery was brought in to dig trenches in order to drain the sodden field to facilitate the search. Family wishes had prompted the search, which was hampered by heavy rain. And again, nothing was found. In October of 2003, Gardie met with police from Devon and Cornwall and the PSNI. At the time, both of those police forces were investigating possible links with Robert Black and unsolved disappearances in their jurisdictions, Jeanette Tate and Jennifer Cardy. If the PSNI and the investigative team out of Scotland were right, then it was possible that Robert Black had been in Ireland in the years around Mary's disappearance, and he may have travelled as far west as Donegal in that time. In fact, after his arrest in 1990, people in Donegal realised that Robert Black was familiar to them. During the course of the investigation in Scotland and England, police discovered that Black had driven delivery routes to Northern Ireland, and Ballyshannon, the town nearest to Cashelard, is just a few minutes over the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. According to some young residents of the area, Robert Black was a regular in the area in the late 70s and 80s and known to go out with locals to late-night pubs in places as far north as Anagri or Guidore. Black was known to have stayed in Donegal with a family in 1978. One woman recalled to Bridget McLaughlin reporting for the Irish Independent in 1999 that Black had stopped a young boy on the road after borrowing his host's family car so he could go and buy the paper. The boy had longish hair, which was the style at the time, and Black had asked him to be directed to a shop. According to Bridget McLaughlin, this seemed unusual given that Black was quite familiar with the area, having stayed there before and when the boy gave directions according to the source Black wasn't happy with the information he'd received and asked the young lad to come closer to the car. The boy didn't and Black drove off. He made a loop around the town of Anagree and returned to the house without his paper. The same weekend, and in fact around the same time, sources recalled that another child in the area, a little girl who was well known in the community, had endured an attempted at snatching. And there was further evidence of Black having been in the area. Black's name had been recorded by Gardee in 1978 when they discovered a lock in in a pub after serving hours had finished. The publican was fined, and Black's name made its way into Garda records, only to be discovered many, many years later. Black was known to park his van in a lot near to the Bridge Inn in Dunglow about an hour north and west of Cashelard. People thought him odd. He never offered lifts to his drinking buddies and one girl swore she once heard crying coming from the back of his van. At the time, the young woman assumed that she must have heard an animal whimpering or something. When reporters spoke to her later, she wasn't so sure. Black was also alleged to have asked locals where Mary had lived, and asked to be taken to the Boyle house, only a ten-minute drive from Dunglow. It was reported that he'd gotten annoyed at the girls he'd asked when they wouldn't comply with what they thought of as his morbid request made out of curiosity. After the conviction for Jennifer Cardy's murder, it was reported by the Irish Independent that the Boyle family did not think that Black was responsible for Mary's disappearance but nevertheless they wanted Gardie to investigate any possible links he might have to the case. All of these reports, in addition to the record of Black in the Donegal pub, seemed to lend credence to the idea that he might have been involved in Mary's disappearance and presumed death. Later though, as his work records and receipts were gone through more thoroughly, it was realised that, although the bonus that Black had been paid the week Mary'd gone missing might reflect a trip to Northern Ireland, it could also be for two trips to the north, to Scotland. And on top of that, his petrol receipts put him heading in that direction too. Black died in January of 2016, having admitted no crimes at all, beyond the abduction of the little girl in Stowe, never mind crimes he had simply been linked with, such as Jeanette Tate and Mary Boyle. However, the investigation into Mary Boyle's disappearance had continued beyond the links with him on January ninth, twenty eleven A dig took place in the bog, three hundred metres from where Mary was last seen. It had been decided to carry out the search by the Boyle family on the back of information that they had gotten from a Danish psychic hired by Margot O'Donnell, a cousin and friend of the family and sister to the famous Daniel. Psychic Jan Stearns had visited the Bogland near to the old family home three times before determining where the search should be. Family searched the area with the help of the Gardaí and items were taken away for examination. Two large holes were excavated but the search was called off after two days. There was a renewed inquiry by the Gardaí at the beginning of 2012, headed up by Monaghan-based Detective Superintendent John O'Reilly. The inquiry was similar to a cold case review, with every piece of information and evidence being looked at once more. Gardaí appealed for people to come forward with information with the promise of the utmost confidentiality. In March of 2012, further searches in the Bogland were conducted, close to the grandparents' home, with yet again no results. There were reports in October of 2014 that Gardy were looking once more at the prospect of Robert Black being responsible for Mary's disappearance. They had been given fresh evidence that not only was Black the culprit, he had attempted to abduct Mary's twin sister Anne, a year after Mary went missing. But suddenly, shortly after that, there seemed to be a huge break in the case. News reports announced that on the 21st of October that year, 2014, a convicted sex offender had been arrested for the purpose of questioning in relation to Mary's disappearance. He was reported as being in his 60s from Donegal and was serving a sentence for indecent assault with a record of sexual abuse dating back 50 years. The information the Gardaí acted on had come from the review of the case in 2011. The man was arrested in the Midlands, Portleash prison to be exact, and taken to Mullingar Garda Station. This was the first arrest in the case. Gardi gave a press conference in the lashings of rain outside the Garda Station and appealed for the public to come forward with any information relevant to the inquiry. Anne Boyle, Mary's mother, revealed to the Irish Independent that she knew the man who was being questioned. Anne said the man was a few years younger than her, but she knew him growing up. In 2015, it was revealed that the man who had been arrested and questioned was 64 year old Brian McMahon. He had grown up in a foster home in South Donegal and told the Sligo champion that though he knew Anne Senior to see and had spoken to her, he'd never seen Mary in his life. He said he had absolutely nothing to do with the disappearance. After his time in Donegal and a stint in the army, McMahon went on to move south to Sligo, where he ran an arcade in the centre of town in the 80s. McMahon told the press that the people of Sligo were supportive of him, though, despite his conviction and imprisonment. At the time of his questioning, Brian McMahon had been serving an 18 month sentence, having been jailed over a number of offences against boys in Donegal. At his trial, he had faced 35 charges of indecent assault occurring between the years of 1966 and 1974. He had been convicted of 31 of those charges. The incidents described to the court had involved two brothers, the eldest of whom was 10 when the abuse had started. At the time of the offenses, McMahon was 16 years old. However, Connor Lally from the Irish Times reported that McMahon's victims were both young boys and girls. McMahon thought that he had been identified by Gardie as a potential suspect after RTE aired a documentary on the case, and a viewer called to say that they recalled McMahon pointing out the Boyle house on a visit back to Donegal long after the disappearance. He said he was quiet and a bit reclusive, and that this had made him an easy target. After the period for questioning was over, McMahon was released and returned to the Midlands prison without charge. Gardie said upon release, quote, pending further investigations, a file will be sent to the Director of Public Prosecutions, end quote. But whether the file was sent or not, those charges never materialised. Frustration was growing within Mary's family. Her twin sister, by that stage grown and married, and now going by Anne Daugherty, looked for political help to solve Mary's case. She met with TDs, Irish politicians, in Leinster House, the Irish Parliament, in October of 2015. Anne made it clear that she didn't think McMahon was responsible, nor did she believe that Robert Black was involved in her sister's abduction. Anne Doherty told the political representatives that she believes she knows who killed her sister, and that there was a political and police cover-up at the time to pervert the course of justice. She and her cousin Margot O'Donnell gave statements to police at the city centre Pier Street Garda Station in the hope that it would kick-start a further re-investigation. Around the same time, Maeve Sheehan reported in the Sunday Independent that Detective Sergeant Aidan Murray, who worked Mary's case back in 1977, had spoken to one person that he later said he believed should have been brought in for questioning. The then-retired detective sergeant recalled that he had heard later at a Garda conference that a politician had attempted to intervene in the investigation. He said that a local politician had quote-unquote put in a call on behalf of the person that Murray had spoken to, but there was never any evidence of this, Murray also went on to state that he believed that there was quote no way that serial child killer Robert Black had been in the remote area that Mary had disappeared from. Also according to the Irish Independent a senior guard a source said that they were taking the concerns expressed by Anne and Margot seriously and that a report on the case was expected. It was thought that the case would be handed over to the National Bureau of Criminal Investigations. In July of 2016, the Irish Daily Star reported that Senior Gardie confirmed that Mary's case would be sent to the Serious Crime Review Team, the Irish Cold Case Unit. 2016 would be a year that Mary Boyle's case garnered a lot of attention. The disappearance had never really dropped out of the media, but certainly in that year, Mary Boyle was brought back to the public's consciousness. Not only had the Cold Case Review begun, a documentary was released about how Mary had gone missing. It would prove to be controversial. The documentary, called Mary Boyle, The Untold Story, was released in July of 2016 by controversial journalist Gemma O'Doherty. In the Irish Times, Kitty Holland described O'Doherty as a, quote, rogue reporter, who was made redundant by the Irish Independent After she broke news that Garda had wiped penalty points from driving licences of a number of prominent individuals, O'Doherty had then doorstepped the Garda commissioner and was forced to leave the paper. She took a case for defamation and got an unreserved apology from the Independent and its editor Stephen Ray. She is now best known as an obscure far-right political pundit. Of particular interests from her film itself were parts of the interviews with Gardi, who had worked the original case. Martin Collins, a retired Garda sergeant, made claims in the film that a politician rang Gardi during the initial investigation and asked that members of a named family not be looked at or spoken to about the disappearance. Again, retired Garda Aidan Murray also said in the documentary that he'd felt he'd been close to getting a confession from an individual but alleged he'd been asked by Senior Gardee to ease off the pressure. Both Anne, Mary's sister and their cousin Margot appeared in the film and as a whole the project alleged a miscarriage of justice and that political pressure had protected the man that had kidnapped and killed Mary. Anne believes that Mary was being sexually abused and was killed to cover it up. She said in the documentary that Mary was a feisty, chatty girl and that if she'd been interfered with, there was no way that Mary wouldn't tell. Within weeks of the documentary's release, however, both former Gardie who had been interviewed by O'Doherty went on record to say that there had been no interference or pressure applied to them during the course of the investigation. Aidan Murray said that his interviews had been presented in a selective and misleading manner and Martin Collins stoutly denied that there had been any political interference in the investigation. Collins reiterated that he had never received a phone call during the investigation telling him to avoid speaking to a named family and that what he'd told the documentary producers was that he had heard a rumour about it months later at a Garda conference. Collins told the Irish Times, quote, it was common knowledge about this phone call, but it was treated with the utmost negativity and it had nothing whatsoever to do with the investigation, end quote. Murray told the Irish Times that he had been asked to ease up on his questioning of a particular suspect because of a history of mental health problems in the extended family, and it was thought that if this man was pushed too far, he might make an attempt to take his own life. During the interview, the suspect became very upset when Murray suggested that Mary was dead. Later, Murray told the Irish Times, quote, If there's a cover-up, it's not within the Gardaí. Everybody felt that they, that is the local people, close ranks on us. Somebody up there knows more than they are saying. End quote. Gemma O'Doherty wouldn't respond to the Irish Times when they contacted her, but she did tell a regional radio station, Ocean FM, That she stood by her finished product and implied that the retired guardi were now changing their tune in the face of backlash. That backlash came primarily from politicians local to the constituency that Mary Boyle had lived in and disappeared from, according to Paddy Clancy, writing in the Irish Times in July 2016. Finnafall TD passed the cope Gallagher, who had been involved in politics in the area since 1979 issued a statement saying that he wasn't involved in the Mary Boyle investigation in any way. Another politician, a local councillor in Donegal called Sean McIniff, also made a statement denying that he had contacted Gardie as described in the video. He had been involved in local politics for over 50 years and felt he needed to speak out because the implication seemed clear to local people that he had somehow been involved in interfering with the Mary Boyle case. His statement said in part, quote, Mr McIniff is satisfied that the two former Guardi interviewed, as part of the video, have recently clarified that at the time of the disappearance or in the investigation that followed, neither were aware of any such alleged phone call and that there was no impediment from their superiors in the investigation as a result, end quote. called the statements made in the documentary defamatory, and said he was prepared to take steps to protect his right to his good name. Later in the month of July in 2016, the YouTube video of Gemma O'Doherty's documentary was removed because of a threat of legal action for defamation, but it was unblocked sometime later and is still available on that platform. Further information that had not been previously reported also made its way into the press at this time. PJ Coughlin, one of the men who had been in the area fishing the day that Mary went missing, told the Daily Star newspaper that he'd seen Mary being driven away in a red car, a Volkswagen Beetle, minutes before he saw her uncle Jerry looking for her. PJ said he'd seen Jerry coming up the hill yelling for Mary and added that he'd been the one to go notify the Garda station at Ballyshannon to inform them of the missing child. This information was not included in his original statement in 1977. That statement said only that he had heard a car at around 5pm that day, apparently driving in the direction of the border, towards Belique. PJ had told investigators about the car again in 2002, during that review of Mary Boyle's case. Mr Coughlin told the newspaper that he hadn't been quiet about this information, recalling that he'd told nearly anyone who asked about seeing the red car, but went on to say in the 2016 interview that the information hadn't been recorded because, he alleged, Gardie already had a suspect in mind. The man he was with fishing that day recalled no car at all, and though records of cars that crossed the border that day did describe a red car, it wasn't a beetle. There was even more activity in relation to the investigation into Mary's disappearance when on the 15th of July 2016, the bog in Donegal was once again searched by Gardie in conjunction with being fully drained in an effort to locate Mary's body. Gardie issued a statement about the excavations in the context of the renewed investigation. It read in part, quote, The primary purpose of a review is to assist Senior investigation officers who are investigating a serious crime by identifying new and potential investigative opportunities. Members of the SCRT are trained in homicide investigation and in the reviewing of unsolved homicides. End quote. The dig had been undertaken at the request of the family, with Gardie noting that the area had been examined before. A forensic anthropologist was on site. To assist with the examination. Nothing was found. The day after the dig, a public demonstration called March for Mary was held in Ballyshannon to remember the missing little girl and to call for action. Anne Daugherty, Mary's twin, described the cold case review in 2016 as a sham to the Irish Times and said that it was all just for show to give the impression that the Gardie were actively working the case. Gardie were in fact actively working, according to her, to prevent a case being built against the man she suspected of murdering her sister. She and her cousin Margot have strong feelings of what they believe happened to Mary and continue to affirm that both politicians and Gardie and possibly even members of their own family have worked to ensure that whoever is responsible for Mary's disappearance and death is not brought to justice. A protest was held outside the Donegal County Coroner's Office in 2018 calling for an inquest into Mary's case on the anniversary of her disappearance. Joe Craig, a family member and former spokesperson for the Justice for Mary Boyle campaign, said that an inquest might go some way to find out what had happened to mary and that time was running out they presented a petition with over 10000 signatures on it and senior mary's mother has said that although she knows her daughter is likely dead she does not want an inquest to go ahead without her knowing that for sure at the same time there was a renewed appeal by gardie for any information that might assist them in their inquiries the Gardie described the investigation as live and ongoing. Eventually, Councillor McIniff took a defamation proceeding against journalist and documentarian Gemma O'Doherty. After his death in March of this year 2019, his executor was granted permission to continue the €75,000 action on behalf of Mr McInniff's estate. Since the introduction of the revised defamation laws in 2009, it is now possible for actions to be continued on behalf of estates when usually libel and slander cannot be pursued after someone's death. Mary Boyle's father, Charlie, died in July of 2005. He was salmon fishing near his home and the waters turned rough. When the lifeboat crew found his small vessel, it was overturned and Charlie Boyle's body was found nearby. Attempts to resuscitate him failed. Later, Anne Boyle Sr. spoke to Anita Gadara of the Irish Independent and said, quote, There's not a day passes that I don't think about the two of them. At least now Charlie knows what happened to Mary. I miss him so much. He was always such a comfort when we grieved together for Mary. End quote. Every year on the anniversary of Mary's disappearance, Anne Senior has a mass said for her and she prays for her weekly at a shrine in her local church. She asks for a sign of where Mary is. A grotto with a statuette of an angel in it has been erected in Mary's memory in Kincasla, County Donegal, near to her family home. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes to Lauren Jett, Aidan Hartnett, Steve Wills, Brendan Duffin, Mairead Kavanagh, Karen McLeod, Ashling Naughton, Jennifer Wilson, Brent Eldridge, Gabby, Grace H., James Gannon, Eva Murphy, Anne-Marie Burke, and Keeley Byrne. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod if you'd also like to support the show. Our theme music is Quinsong, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, and additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.